You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. AMD investigates a report of exploitable flaws in its processors. Vietnamese threat actor Ocean Lotus gets a look from researchers. We've got some Patch Tuesday notes. Britain expels Russian diplomats in retaliation for a nerve agent attack. Russia demands to know what these cyber attacks are that the UK is said to be threatening. A brief history of Russo-British 21st century espionage and cyber tensions. And Iranian threat actor Muddy Waters threatens researchers. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, March 14, 2018. Significant flaws in AMD processors have been reported by CTS Labs, a hitherto little-known Israeli firm. AMD says it's investigating, but also says it had never heard of CTS Labs, and that CTS gave AMD only a day's warning before going public. This is, of course, far shorter than the 60 to 90 days most companies tend to follow. Google's Project Zero, for example, uses 90 days. How quickly a flaw might be made public can depend upon other things, too. A present danger to public safety might well warrant swift public disclosure, but that doesn't seem to be the case here. The flaws, which affect Epic, Ryzen, Ryzen Pro, and Ryzen Mobile processors, require admin rights for exploitation. It is possible for attackers to gain admin rights in various ways, so that's not an insurmountable obstacle to exploitation. CTS Labs calls the vulnerabilities Master Key, Rise and Fall, Fallout, and Chimera. Assessment of the details is difficult. CTS Labs redacted much technical information to prevent its use by bad actors. Security experts differ in their judgment of the problem's severity, but few seem willing to defend the way the vulnerabilities were disclosed. ESET and others have been tracking Ocean Lotus, also known as APT32 or Cobalt Kitty. The threat group operates for the most part against targets in Southeast Asia. Cambodia, Laos, and the Philippines are said to be particularly affected. It shows some sophistication in its approach and operations. Yesterday was March's Patch Tuesday. Adobe issued its regular ritualistic patches of Flash Player, and if you use Flash Player, you should apply them. Microsoft came out with 14 updates that, by Krebs on Security's estimation, covered more than 75 vulnerabilities. 
Avanti puts the number at 78. Redmond's patches affect all the still-supported Windows versions, and also Explorer, Edge, Office, SharePoint, and Exchange Server. The critical vulnerabilities addressed are said to be in browsers and related software. Mozilla Firefox and Firefox ESR also issued patches. They rate their updates as critical and say they've fixed 21 vulnerabilities. Do you use a VPN to access your corporate network remotely? Plenty of people do, and it's widely considered a good practice for security and privacy reasons. Patrick Sullivan is Director of Security Tech and Strategy at Akamai, and he joins us to outline some of the challenges of VPN use and why the notion of verify and never trust is a core principle worth consideration. You know, VPN is sort of a broad term. Uh, There are VPNs, you know, for point-to-point connectivity between offices, Uh, We won't talk about that today. I think we'll talk about the category of VPNs that are used to provide remote access. Um, So I think, you know, really what what we're seeing is is at one time sort of VPNs were, if not the exclusive, certainly the dominant technology used to provide uh, remote access. And if we look at sort of the assumptions that that went into that, there was sort of a a network perimeter-based model that, uh, that almost everybody implemented. Uh, And really in that model, you saw users and apps inside sort of a trusted network segment, uh, typically in a corporate data center. And then there was some form of network perimeter that would separate the trusted uh, segment of the network, which was on private IPs from the untrusted public Internet. Some people call this sort of a castle and mode architecture. Hmm. And VPN was the preferred technology that that would be used to extend that uh, interior of the castle and mode, if you will, to one of our trusted employees who happened to be outside of the four walls of that corporate office. So to extend that castle and moat to to somebody's uh, remote location and give them trusted network layer access um, that they could use to access uh, corporate applications. So you all are are advocating uh, this principle of verify and never trust. Can you take us through what that means? We're certainly one voice of of many there. So I, I think, you know, when you look at kind of the traditional uh, you know, VPNs are, are kind of what we're talking about today. Uh, somebody would connect in uh, to that VPN for the duration of that session, maybe eight hours. Uh, and at that point, we've decided that we trust them on that VPN session. If somebody walks into our office, they're an employee, they, they connect into an Ethernet port or a corporate Wi-Fi, uh, we're trusting them at the network layer. Uh, so, so really that, that, that level of trust at the network layer is dangerous. We've seen that. Uh, I think there are a number of voices out there. You know, Forrester with uh, was with Zero Trust. Gartner talks about Carta, uh, and really they speak about the risk of trying to make a perfect macro level security decision. You know, specifically in this case, to give somebody network layer access on a VPN for the next eight hours. Right. That's a that's a macro level decision. Hmm. Um, and I think the opposite of that is to uh, to not trust at the network layer, to, to proxy each and every request, uh, to inspect those and to consider identity, to consider least privilege, which which applications does somebody uh, need to, to perform their job, you know, based on their, their role in the organization, you know, potentially, you know, doing simple things like multi-factor authentication as well uh, as part of that configuration. So take us through, what are you advocating in, in terms of implementing this sort of thing? I, I have to say, it, it sounds more complicated than uh, than what we were dealing with earlier, but uh, is it is it in fact? I don't think so, right? So I think if, if you look at the way this would work, um, in, in many cases, what you have is an access proxy. So rather than a network layer device that, uh, that drops you into a trusted network segment, 
uh, an end user would point their browser uh, to a, a proxy. You know, DNS will will direct them there, uh, and then that proxy will have information uh, about their identity uh, in that organization. And part of that identity would be their uh, their role, their their job description. So it's actually a uh, in many ways, it's simpler to set up and it's faster. Um, I think when, when Akamai first embarked on this, we were up and running and, and we first looked at third-party retailers and we had a system up in place in hours uh, because it is a SaaS-based model in the cloud, uh, which uh, takes away a lot of the challenges of rack and stack. That's Patrick Sullivan from Akamai. Taking a quick look at our CyberWire event tracker, coming up is the third annual Billington International Cybersecurity Summit that's going to be on March 21st at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. And if you're in the Denver area next week on March 22nd, the Cybersecurity Summit is coming up. You can get 50% off your admission with the code CYBERWIRE50 on their website, cybersummitusa.com. To find out more about these events and to get your event listed, head on over to thecyberwire.com slash events. The U.K. is expelling 23 Russian diplomats in retaliation for the attempted assassination of a former GRU officer. Russia offered no explanation, beyond denial, before last night's midnight deadline, instead demanding explanation of rumors that the U.K. is considering retaliatory cyber attacks against Russia. Prime Minister May has said she will consider the full range of measures available to retaliate against Russia. Business Insider has a useful quick summary of what that range looks like. First, expulsion of Russian diplomats. This has been done, with 23 of them declared persona non grata. Second, formal withdrawal of official UK presence at the upcoming World Cup to be held in Russia. Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson has suggested this. It seems likely to happen. Third, withdrawal of credentials from RT, the Russia Today news service. Ofcom, the independent British communications regulator, is considering pulling RT's license, and many observers think it likely to do so. If it does, Russia is likely to kick British news services out of Russia. Fourth, cyber attacks against Russia assets. This one is risky, but it's also an option that Home Secretary Amber Rudd has hinted at in the past. It's also the option Russia has itself demanded an explanation of. Britain is a capable cyber power, and it's difficult to imagine London and Moscow actually wanting to swap punches in cyberspace. On the other hand, the Five Eyes have all recently attributed NotPetya to the Russian government, and British companies figured prominently among the victims of that campaign, so there may be some sense that the battle's already been drawn. Fifth, freezing the assets of Russian oligarchs. The conservative government has come under pressure from Labour, and also from others, to enact some version of the U.S. Magnitsky Act, which would enable the freezing or forfeiture of Russian assets. The government has been reluctant to do so, but this sort of retaliation would certainly hit what influence Russians value. Her Majesty's government is asking for a UN Security Council meeting to address what it regards with reason as a Russian chemical attack on British soil. 22 people were treated for exposure to nerve agent. Three, the two targets, Sergei Skripal and his daughter, and a British first responder remain under treatment. A few hundred others in the vicinity of the attacks were offered decontamination. Another Russian, businessman Nikolai Glushkov, a fugitive from Russian justice in an Aeroflot embezzlement case and a witness in the Litvinenko assassination, which also happened in the UK, 
died under unexplained circumstances Tuesday in his London home. Police report signs of strangulation. Of course, Russian wet operations are widely suspected, and authorities in the UK are investigating the death as a possible act of terrorism. Alexander Litvinenko was a former FSB officer and defector who became a naturalized British subject. On November 1, 2006, Litvinenko was hospitalized for what was diagnosed as exposure to polonium-210. The dose proved lethal. Litvinenko died three weeks later. If Sergei Skripal and his daughter were hit with a chemical weapon, Litvinenko fell victim to a radiological one. The Muddy Water Threat Group, generally associated with Iran, also seems newly disposed to play rough. Trend micro-researchers probing a server connected to the group received a message in stereotypical terrorist lingo right out of the scriptwriter's world. Stop! Kill you, researcher! Normally, one would laugh this kind of thing off as skid nonsense, but anyone might be excused any additional wariness they might feel in the wake of what's been happening in the UK. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And joining me once again is Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Justin, welcome back. Um, You know, I have often heard that uh, when you suffer a data breach... Uh, time is of the essence, and you wanted to make the point today that uh, those first 48 hours are really critical. 
Yeah, many times you, you don't really know if you have an incident. And when you get that first alert or when you get the first notification, the clock is really starts ticking. So during that first 48 hours, you've got to do a few things. Number one is you've got to triage and see exactly what you have. Is it nation state? Is it cryptocurrency malware? Is it cyber criminal? Is it a ransomware? And once you establish what that uh, what that type of malware is or what what that incident is, then you need to go into into incident response mode, assuming that it is an, it characterized as an incident. And it's really critical that you follow your incident response procedures and and actually that they're that they are developed up front. Mm. What we're seeing many times is that uh, during that first forty eight, there is a bit of a let's throw caution and the plan that we've worked on for the last few years or, or that we've we've always kept in this little box ready to go break in case of cyber <laughs> emergency and uh, and all that goes out the door um, but it, it's it's so it's critically important that you spend the time up front and drill around a strong incident response plan it's also important to have uh, a retainer to be able to reach out to another firm or organization to get help and a lot of times what I have seen is that there's a cyber crisis or a cyber incident and the company or the enterprise hasn't prepared in getting all of the necessary paperwork done for having that incident response re- retainer for outside help. And what ends up happening is you, there is a deluge of vendors. If it becomes public, there's a deluge of vendors trying to get their foot in the door and tell you about their solution, their service, their, their people that can help you. And assuming that you do pick an incident response vendor during this uh, first 48, then you're going to go into legal hell. <laughs> you're going to go, your own legal team will be amped up wanting to review everything because there's a uh, there's an active incident. And can you imagine trying to get an incident response retainer or incident response contract done in that period of time. So you're going to go back and forth on red lines around liability, around data protection classifications, how your data is handled and where it's stored. You don't want to do that up front. You want to be able to have that retainer in place beforehand so that's as simple as picking up the phone and and dialing uh, an incident response company and saying, I need your, your services right now. And it strikes me that because so much of this, I think, when something like this happens, there's a natural tendency for people to be emotional. Something bad has happened. And the more you can plan ahead of time to help keep yourselves out of that emotional state, that probably the better off you're going to be. Absolutely. When you're when you're going off half cocked, if you're going off and uh, not properly framing the problem and thinking about it in a in a deliberate manner, uh, you are at risk of making some poor decisions. For instance, uh, one of the things that uh, is very commonplace in the industry is don't destroy the evidence. Meaning, if you have an incident, don't turn the machine off and don't um, ship it uh, in its shutdown state to somewhere else for examination. You want to put the system in, in hibernation mode. Hmm. By putting it in hibernation mode, that uh, gets it off the network. It is essentially sleeping, and you're able to preserve uh, the memory for future analysis. Oh, I see. So your so your volatile memory is an important part of uh, assessing what's happened as well. Absolutely, we're seeing uh, more and more fileless based attacks, meaning attacks that are only resident within memory. A lot of these are PowerShell 
based in nature and it's very difficult to go back in time without that volatile memory yeah all right good advice as always justin harvey thanks for joining us thank you are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program with the largest network of trust centers Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. 
That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. 